1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Law, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Anna Arsting-Kerslake about her new book, Restoring Voice to the People with Cognitive Disabilities, Realising the Right to Equal Legal Recognition Before the Law. Anna, welcome to the show. Now Anna, i if you if we can begin the interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself. I'm sure.
2: Yes. Um, I am originally from California um, and did my law degree in New York, um, where I actually happened to be there at the same time that the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities was being drafted in the UN. Um, And that was sort of the beginning of my um, career as a disability human rights. Um, academic and activist. Um, uh, After that, I um, went on to work with Human Rights Watch in Brussels for um, some time and then um, got a position at the National University of Ireland um, as a research fellow working specifically on the right to legal capacity and the right to be um, equally recognized before the law. Um, and looking specifically at disability um, and that's kind of where my interest in this area came from um, and sort of where my career really evolved from. Now of course I am an associate professor at Melbourne Law School um, where all my research um, writing and teaching um, is centres around the rights of people with disabilities.
1: Wow it's a very rich career already um, and can you tell me a little bit about how you came to write Restoring Voice to the People with Cognitive Disabilities.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so I uh, have a, covered a, a little bit of this in the um, the preface to the book, um, but I'll just give you an overview here. Um, uh, basically, uh, the, the process of writing the book started with my PhD research, um, which I did in Ireland, also in Galway at the National University of Ireland. Um, but the the knowledge and the experience um, that I hopefully have um, uh, brought out in the book um, comes from a more personal place. My sister has Prader-Willi syndrome and um, she's two years younger than me. uh, So we grew up together and Prader-Willi syndrome is a disability um, where the individual often has low muscle tone um and also ha- does not have the same hormones that most people have that tell them when they're full so it's really difficult to exercise because you have low muscle tone um, and you also sorry also have low metabolism um so it's difficult to exercise um you gain weight faster um and you're hungry all the time um there's some other things as well but but those are the aspects that are most relevant for um what what ultimately um, developed into my interest in writing this book. Um, And that is that the combination of being hungry all the time, having low muscle tone um, and um, not being able to exercise um, and low metabolism um, means that making decisions related to food is very difficult for people with Prader-Willi syndrome um, and even can result in, in their death. Um, because they overeat um, until their stomach explodes. This has happened to to many people with Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, so it's kind of um, it's life or death decision making that that people with disability uh, with sorry with Prader-Willi syndrome are forced to make on a daily basis. Um, and throughout my life, the way my parents brought up my sister and I is that. Um, everybody gets to make their own decisions and we live with them. um, But we also support each other in making those decisions. So nobody was making decisions for Sarah, essentially. Sarah is the name of my sister. Um, Instead, um, Sarah was making her own decisions um regarding food and doing the best she could, not always making the right decisions. Um, and the rest of us were were there to support her. Of course, it was never a perfect process. I, I think decision making for anyone is never a perfect process. Um, but um, those were the skills that Sarah developed um throughout her life. And and me, only being two years older than her, um, I never thought that was exceptional. When I got older um, and when Sarah got older, um, we realized how exceptional our situation truly was, especially for someone with prader Willie syndrome, um, but also for people with disabilities, uh, especially cognitive disabilities more broadly. Um, when Sarah was around 25, she wanted to move out of home and she wanted to live in a group home. And, um, it was, it was her choice. She researched the group home. She found which one she wanted, which was a group home specializing in Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, we all went to visit the home with her, which was, um, very far away from where my parents live, about a four hour flight away from my parents in, uh, California. My parents are in California. The home was in Wisconsin. So it was quite far away. Um, but this is what Sarah wanted. Um, and we all supported her in doing that, um, once she got there, um, everything changed relating to decision-making and relating to her legal status to make those decisions for herself. Um, at the group home, and this is common in many group homes, um, Sarah couldn't make any decisions related to food. The staff made all the decisions related to food and provided, it to the, provided the food um, to the house residents. Um, Sarah being one of them. Um, And not only that, um, Sarah couldn't leave the house. Um, She couldn't go on a walk unless there was a staff member available to go with her. Um, She also always wanted to work in childcare setting and was led to believe she would be able to do that, be be able to be supported to do that at some point um, while living at the group home. Um, Instead, everybody was bused together to a sheltered workshop every day where your only option was to kind of work on this more or less assembly line that they had, um, or you could sit with your head down um, on the table um, in the corner. Um, so Sarah's decisions were completely, uh, her right to make decisions for her life was completely removed from her. Um, and, uh, and she was completely de-skilled in decision-making. Um, her mental health uh, deteriorated um, and, um, ultimately she tried to commit suicide several times. Um, of course there's a longer story behind this as well, but this is the, the shorter version. Um, at the same time that this was happening, I was in law school and I knew I wanted to do social justice work. Um, and I realized how important, um, the right the legal right to make decisions in your own life, especially decisions that have legal implications. Um, I realized how important that is. Um, and when I began researching um, about the right, uh, about what that right is, if there is a right, um, if, if, if in fact a right to make your own decisions even exists, um, I found that actually relatively little attention had been given to the right to make your own decisions um, in academic literature, um, but also more broadly in in human rights law. And I think that's largely because most of the people that are writing, drafting, and um, dealing with um, human rights law and the creation of human rights law um, are not um, people that belong to populations at high risk of having their decision-making removed from them. Um, and um, those there's lots of different groups, but people with disabilities would, I, I would say, be at the top of that list of people being at risk of having their decision-making removed from them. Um, realizing that in my research, um, I also came across... Um, the new Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that I mentioned earlier, um, which is um, the newest UN Human Rights Treaty, um, which was adopted by the General Assembly in 2008, Um, and it is the only treaty that um, finally really solidifies and um, provides detail to the right to legal capacity, which is the right to make legal decisions and the right to be um, recognized as a person before the law. Um, And those are the rights that are necessary for someone like my sister um, to be able to make decisions about where she works, about what food she eats every day, um, about where she lives and who she spends time with. Um, It's, essential for her to have the right to legal capacity recognized in order for her to be able to make the decisions that she wants to make on a day-to-day basis um and that's important not not just um as a sort of formality of um rights recognition for an individual um it's important for their overall well-being for their mental health um and for their um ability to participate in society on an equal basis Um, so so that maybe was a long-winded way um, to. it's really interesting on where um on on why i was sort of inspired to look further into the right um and and to write the book about um about what the right to legal capacity is um why that right establishes a right to make legal decisions for yourself Um, and and what the implications are for that.
1: Does that, does that you? Yeah, no, Um, that's really interesting. Can you, for non-disability scholars, can you talk a little bit more about um, what legal capacity is?
2: Sure. Um, So legal capacity is um, essentially it's the right to be a person before the law and uh, an actor under the law. Um, So it really is the law's recognition of you as a legal entity. Um, Interestingly, a whole bunch of work um, has been done over the past 50 years in particular on um, the right of corporations to legal capacity. And the work I'm doing on the right of people with disabilities to legal capacity uh, is essentially the same thing. Um, I'm simply looking at the concept of legal capacity and um, saying, um, why aren't people with disabilities given the same um, pathway, the same recognition um, uh, as a legal entity with legal capacity as other individuals, and in fact as corporations, um, because the 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 sort of development of the law around the legal capacity of corporations is that um, corporations essentially do have legal capacity. Um, They can, in a number of different circumstances, be recognised as legal persons. Um, And interestingly, and um, potentially problematically, um, there's many times that people with disabilities, in fact, aren't recognised as legal
1: persons. Um, Would would examples help of legal capacity? Yeah, um, so I'm quite interested... Um, based on your introduction and also your book, um, you do talk about there's these hard cases um, in terms of people being denied legal capacity. Yeah. Um, And so I'm really interested in how you see the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, how it can provide support for capacity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So
2: So, um, I think um, some of the... Uh, well, I, I'd say some of the most difficult decisions related to capacity, um, uh, related to legal capacity, sorry, um, are around um, mental health law. Um, I think that's a big one. Um, and uh, uh, mental health law and also sort of institutional settings in general. So um, and by institutional settings, I mean um, psychiatric Um, residential settings, um, but also group homes um, like the one that I mentioned before that my sister was living in. Um, So in these settings, it's very common for the the institutional structure um, to be sort of vested with the legal capacity of the individuals um, living there or being treated there. Um, So, for example, my sister was the first person ever in the group home that she lived in. Um, She was the first person to not be placed under guardianship um, um, at the point of entering into it. So everyone else that had ever lived there had already been under guardianship when they moved um, into that group home. And guardianship means, um, usually means um, it varies a bit. Um, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, but guardianship usually means that either a court or another individual um, is allowed to make all legal decisions for you. Um, Sometimes there's limited guardianship where they're only allowed to make a certain range of decisions or certain types of decisions. um, But essentially your, Legal capacity, your legal decision making is removed from you and placed in the hands of um, another individual or or the court. Um, and of course, in psychiatric settings, that's even um, more pronounced. Um, it is um, almost always the the supervising um, psychiatrist um, or or someone else um, in the administration in the administration of the. Um, Institution um, or treatment center um, who has the right to make decisions on the behalf of the individuals um, within uh, that are being treated there or living there. Um, And um, that is essentially um, uh, the removal of legal capacity from the individual um, and the placement of their legal capacity in the hands of the institution or the uh, psychiatrist um or other administrative body um so what that means in practice is that uh you have very little power over what happens to you um so for example um if uh you're under guardianship and um you want to move homes you want to leave the group home you're living in um you're not actually recognized as a legal person who can extinguish a contract or start a new contract with a new, um, a new group home or a new, um, a, a new house or a new um, landlord. Um, it would be only the person who is your guardian that can make that decision for you. Um, there's a really interesting case, um, Jenny Hatch, Um, I don't know if you are familiar with with that case. I'm
1: I'm not. I'm not familiar with that. Um,
2: So Jenny is a woman who lives in, um, I believe it's um, upstate New York, and um, she has Down syndrome. Um, And similar to my sister, had um, lived all her life making her own decisions um, and had never been under guardianship and um, had – a really wonderful um place in her community. She worked at a local um secondhand shop. Um, she went to church every week. Um, she rode her bike around um around town and um got around on her own. Um, when she was in her 20s, I believe, she got in a car accident. Um, uh, she was on her bike, I believe, and um a car hit her and she was hospitalized. Um, at that point her um support needs increased. Um, And uh, sort of one thing led to another and um, ultimately her mother, I believe, was seeking guardianship over her um, and um, seeking to place her into a group home. Um, The court at the time granted guardianship, um, removed Jenny from the community she was living in very successfully and placed her into a group home which is very similar to the one that my sister was living in um in which uh, she couldn't go out on her own um she couldn't excuse me make her own decisions um and um similar to my sister her um her mental health um deteriorated um significantly and quite quickly um the In that instance, um, her legal capacity was removed and placed in the um, guardian, um, which was her mother at the time. Um, So her mother could make all legal decisions for her, essentially. Um, And she did not have power um, to challenge that. Um, That's another really, uh, really problematic aspect of legal capacity denials um, for people with disabilities, um, and particularly in the mental health setting and in many um, institutional settings such as group homes, um, is that there's very few avenues to challenge that removal of your legal capacity. Um, uh, just to, to finish on a positive mm-hmm. note, um, mm-hmm. Jenny's story is a happy one. Ultimately, she found um, a friend, a, a couple friends, to support her to go all the way to through the court system in New York um, to challenge the guardianship. Um, Ultimately, the court didn't remove the guardianship order. Um, However, they did um, place the guardianship in the hands of her friends and included in the order that they had an obligation to support her to the greatest degree possible before making a decision on her behalf. Um, The judge seemed to feel that he couldn't Make any other ruling um, that he had to follow the guardianship laws as they exist in New York, and had to uh, couldn't um, didn't have reason to uh, completely lift the guardianship order, or didn't have enough um, uh, freedom to do that, anyways. Um, but could add to it a commentary that there was a requirement to provide as much support as possible, um, and that's exactly what the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, adds to the right to legal capacity. Um, So as I mentioned before, it establishes really, I mean, establishes is the wrong word. Um, It um, solidifies that there is a right to legal capacity, um, which is a right to make legal decisions for yourself. Um, And then it also includes a state obligation to provide access to support for the exercise of that legal capacity, um, in other words, access to support for making legal decisions, um, and the judge in in Jenny's case um, was recognizing that uh, new international state obligation, um, although um, because of various um, because of various. Uh, sort of conflict of laws issues between international law state law and federal law in the United States the judge did not feel he could um fully um uh return Jenny's legal capacity to her however he did feel that he could make it clear that support is required um for decision making in in cases such as Jenny's
1: um does that make sense no it really does um it's really interesting because I think people are being denied their legal capacity, but it's also meaning not just their right to enter into legal contracts is taken away, but their day-to-day decision-making power is taken away, which is, I think, hugely problematic. Like, for example, I can choose when to eat breakfast, I can choose what to eat, but people in institutions are being denied these opportunities. Um, and I so I think that's, I think it's, Really interesting what you're saying. Um, it's kind of a blanket denial of capacity is a denial of also how to choose how to live as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, and you can you can see that or you can imagine um the implications that has for a person's um self-worth and self-esteem. Absolutely. Um, and um sort of their feeling as um, as a a human who participates in society. Um, if you can't make decisions about who you are and what you do every day, um, it really quickly leads to um, re- strong feelings of disempowerment.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Absolutely. Um. And can you talk a little bit more about how the convention, um, you know, kind of supports these rights? I know you talk a lot, um, in your book about the right to legal capacity from Article twelve. Um, I'm interested because you said that the judge felt he was somewhat bound by the guardianship laws in place. What can the convention do to kind of? you know, direct states in terms of reforming the law, I guess. Yeah,
2: yeah, well, I'll tell you a a little bit uh, about the Mm -hmm. Article 12 of the Convention um, and then I will tell you a little bit about um, what that means for um, domestic law. Um, and, and what that might mean for the lives of people with disabilities then. Um, so the Article 12 is the right to equal recognition before the law, um, which is originally found in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, and is then was then made legally binding by the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, um, and then in the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, um, we find the most recent emanation of that right in Article Twelve. Um, so, interestingly, the right to be uh, the, the right to equal recognition before the law in the um, Universal Declaration and in the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights um, is relatively underexplored. Um, in academia, as well as in um, international human rights, uh, yeah, in, as well as in international human rights law. Um, it sort of um, is sitting out there as, as um, maybe an assumption um, that everyone is equal before the law. Um, interestingly, um, it was the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women that first um, sort of picked up on the issue of equal recognition before the law and um, tied legal capacity to equal recognition before the law. So um, we first see the right to legal capacity um, described actually in the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. Um, It's um, relatively... um, uh, relatively brief, um, and it, it, in, in that convention, and it focuses mostly on, um, sort of, um, inheritance and financial and contract rights of women, sort of establishing that women have an equal right to contract essentially, um, uh, as men, um, as everyone. Um, and, um, the convention on the rights of persons with disabilities then picks up on that, Um, and goes farther um, than the Convention um, on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. So the Convention um, on the Rights of People with Disabilities, in Article 12, includes the right to legal capacity as part of the right to equal recognition before the law. Um, And it says that um, that means... um, Well, actually... Controversially in the drafting process, it doesn't specifically say um, that legal capacity means both personhood and agency. There was um, quite heated debate during the drafting of the convention related to whether legal capacity simply means the right to be a person before the law or whether the right to legal capacity means both the right to be a person before before the law and to exercise legal agency. Um, The significance of that is that you you can be a person before the law, you can be recognized as a person before the law, um, and yet um, not be allowed to exercise your legal agency. So, for example, um, uh, my sister could be recognized as a legal person, and yet the group home could be given the right to exercise legal agency on her behalf, um, which would effectively take away all her decision-making power, even though she's recognized as a legal person. Um, if she can't uh, exercise that legal agency, she can't enact any of the decisions that she wants to make, any of her wishes. Um, so on the, uh, in the creation of Article 12 and in the debates and the drafting of Article 12, There was um, a group of people who wanted to restrict legal capacity to simply legal personhood. There was a very strong um, uh, disability rights um, uh, and disability community push against that. Um, And what the disability community was asking for is that legal capacity be considered to include both the right to personhood and the right to legal agency. the they weren't able to agree that that specific text would be included in the article. Um, however, they were able to agree that there wouldn't be any text specifically limiting legal capacity to personhood. Um, they also agreed on text um, within Article 12 that specifically says that people with disabilities have a right to exercise legal capacity in relation to financial issues and contracting on an equal basis with others, um, and what we can, um, what we can extrapolate from that um, is that the right to legal capacity does in in fact include agency as well as personhood, um, and you can also also extrapolate that assumption from. Um, CEDAW from the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, um, where the right to legal capacity also includes um, the right um, to exercise agency in, in financial and contracting matters in particular. Um, so, so that's um, why Article 12 is important and significant. Um, and The additional um, significance, which I mentioned earlier, is that it also requires that state obligation to provide support. Um, And um, so then the second question is, um, so this all sounds great from a theoretical perspective at the level of international human rights law, but what does that mean for domestic courts and what does that mean for um, individuals with disabilities who, who would like to have those rights realized. Um, and at the domestic level, it means something different in every jurisdiction, um, depending on how international law is incorporated into domestic law. Um, however, um, without getting into an um, a entire lecture on um, international law and how it works, um, um, it's interesting though <laughs> it is it is um, so um, uh, one good example is um, is actually the United States um, and um, New York so so the United States has one of the most um, uh, sort of limiting um, uh, uh, one of the most limiting um, laws in relation to um, it's one of the jurisdictions with the most limiting practices in relation to incorporating international law into domestic law. Um, they essentially won't do it. <laughs> um, um, the only way it can be done is if a piece of domestic legislation um, specifically enacts Um, The text from international law, uh, essentially. Um, So you can imagine how difficult that is and how infrequently that actually happens. Um, That being the case, um, the concepts from international law um, can, however, be very influential um, in both courts and in legislation, um, and in the drafting of um, domestic legislation in in a jurisdiction like the United States. Um, And I'm using that Uh, As an example, um, because it is one of the most restrictive in terms of incorporating international law. Um, So, in jurisdictions where international law can be incorporated um, upon ratification of a treaty, um, you have much less difficulty because then the treaty can, um, in theory, be adjudicated in the domestic courts directly. Um, Many more jurisdictions. Um, are in the situation of the United States where um, international law does not become um, domestic law um, immediately upon ratification. Um, That being the case in the United States, um, there's actually been some really interesting innovations. um, One of them being the Jenny Hatch case that I mentioned earlier, um, but some others being um, also in New York, actually in um, New York City, though, um the surrogates court in new york city um was uh, fortunate enough to have as its um uh, uh, as its um, lead judge um uh, justice kristen booth glenn um and this was about um i'd say this was around almost ten years ago now um, wow. that that justice kristen booth glenn who um uh, I also happen to know very well, and and I went and met with her when I was a law student, actually, and explained what Article Twelve of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is and why New York law um, was not in compliance, because New York law um, at the time, and actually I believe still, um, is uh, includes a relatively restrictive guardianship law, which allows legal capacity to be removed on the basis of disability. Um, So it allows another individual to become um, or to hold um, full legal capacity um, and to be able to make all legal decisions on behalf of a person simply on on the well, not simply on the basis of disability, but essentially it's only people with disabilities that would be subject to that um, guardianship law. Um, So I went and um, explained to Justice Booth-Glenn Um, why this was um, against human rights law, um, being a law student and relatively um, naive and um, idealistic, um, a wonderful combination.
1: I think Uh, we need more students like that, though.
2: (laughs) It's it's wonderful to not really understand um, hierarchy and um, your lowly place in the world. Um, But um, because I was... um, naive and idealistic I um, did take the bold move to go and um, visit Justice Booth Glenn and explain these things to her um, and um, and completely to her credit um, she took it on board and reflected on the laws in New York um, and made a few really interesting um, judgments where she, again, couldn't change the law, of course, because that's not the role of of the court. Um, But she said um, that she had to work within the laws as they are, um, but there was nothing to prevent her from stating the way she believes the laws should be, um, the the limitations of the laws, um, and stating that um, there must be support provided to a maximum level before she would be willing to remove legal capacity from an individual with disability. Um, so before she would be willing to instate um, a guardian, she required that there was evidence that a maximum level of support had been provided um, in order to enable that individual to make decisions on their own. Since then, she's written some really interesting um, uh, uh, legal journal articles as well um on the on the subject um but i think that's um hopefully a really good example of of what can be done at the domestic level even in really um restrictive jurisdictions in in terms of jurisdictions that don't um automatically incorporate international law into their um automatically or easily incorporate international law into their um domestic laws Um,
1: does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I think oftentimes, you know, one frustration in say a common law jurisdiction is that you are somewhat limited by precedent, but I think, you know, uh, justice Glenn shows that you can, you know, judges, lawyers, um, activists can be innovative and, you know, move the law forward, even if the, the laws are quite restrictive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know I think that's that's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm so I'm wondering, like building on what you've been saying, do are there any situations where either the convention or um you know equality law would seek to limit um personhood or agency of someone with a disability?
2: Um so my reading on on it, um, and um, my argument, I guess, um, um, and and this is what I um, write about in the book, um, is is that the answer would be no. Um, that the right to legal capacity, the right to equal recognition before the law, um, means that that there should be no circumstance in which any individual um, has their legal capacity their legal decision-making skills um, restricted or limited on the basis of disability. Now, that being said, um, of course, we all live with restrictions on our autonomy restrictions on our legal capacity um, that, that are just part of of the social contract, part of living in society. Um, So we can't all make whatever decision we want and um, uh, have that um, enacted at, at any point in time, of course, we have the, the criminal law that restricts us, um, civil law that restricts us in various ways, um, and, and um, absolutely the right to legal capacity um, of people with disabilities doesn't allow them any greater decision making, of course, than than the rest of the population. Um, um, however, importantly, it also doesn't allow them less. So, uh, mental health law again is a great example. Um, Almost all mental health law, at least all mental health law that I know of, um, allows uh, a person, allows a person's legal capacity um, to be restricted, um, limited or denied um, on the basis that that individual has um, a uh, mental health disability. Um, That would run counter to Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, So if we are going to um, remove the right to legal capacity um, in the context of liberty, for example, so the right to decide whether you're going to be um, in a psychiatric treatment center or not, Um, So your um, liberty, um, essentially, to be either um, detained in a a facility or um, to not be within that facility, um, that would only be in line with Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities if anyone, regardless of whether they have a mental health disability, um, could be subject to such a law. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, essentially the, the, the short answer to your question is, um, people with disabilities, including cognitive disabilities, um, such as intellectual disability and mental health disability, um, must have the same right to legal capacity, um, as, as those without disabilities, um, which is a great challenge to our legal systems as they currently exist um, in various different ways. So, so mental health law is, is one of the most striking examples, um, but also guardianship law, um, which I've talked a bit about, um, but also in, in, in most jurisdictions, guardianship law is premised on the person having a disability. Um, so they won't, the court will not, um, uh, will not, um, order a guardianship will not make a guardianship order if the person um cannot be shown to have a disability so they have to have a disability before the um before their legal capacity can be removed and given to a guardian Um, and um the other area um that i've done um a few uh, quite significant research projects on um is um the insanity defense um in criminal Law and um, the um, uh, and unfitness to plead laws also in criminal law. So um, the essentially the right to um, enter a plea when you're charged with a crime. Um, I believe my argument is, um, and and there's others out there arguing um, the same. Um, my argument is that um, the laws that. Um, don't allow uh, that remove someone's right to enter a plea on the basis that they have a disability are counter to the right to legal capacity. So they violate the right to legal capacity. Um, the, that, the, the only thing that would be compliant with the right to legal capacity would be, um, would be allowing the individual to, um, either um, relinquish, um, voluntarily relinquish legal capacity um, to um, uh, someone else, a legal representative to go through with the trial, if that's what an individual wishes um, or alternatively um, supporting the individual um, to enter a plea and go through the trial process. Um, So they maintain their legal personhood. They maintain their legal agency, um, which, of course, as I explained before, is their legal capacity, Um, and um, they are supported to go through the trial process, Um, which, of course, sounds um, scary and maybe sounds counter to um, an instinct to protect people with cognitive disabilities in particular that are charged with a crime. Um, However, my research and and many other people's research have found that, um, in fact... Um, in a majority of cases, when people are found unfit to plead, um, and that's almost always people with disabilities um, are found unfit to plead, um, they in fact uh, receive sentences, um, or um, the the outcome essentially is that they are detained for much much longer than they would have been if they were allowed to go through with a trial. Um, if they were supported through a trial, um, and um, in fact, in some cases, they are detained indefinitely um, because there's no. Um, in some jurisdictions, there's no there's no provision for what should happen if um, an individual is found um, unfit to plead um, and um, the trial can't go forward. Um, so, so that's just a, another example of how important the right to legal capacity is, and how. Um, our legal system could in fact be much more um, efficient um, and much more um, equal if we were to really endeavor to ensure that the right to legal capacity is protected on an equal basis for people with and without disabilities. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, no, that's um i really I wholly agree with you. I think I've read um the committee, I think, in relation to their guidelines on Article 14, which is the right to liberty and security of the person, have said that, you know, criminal laws apply to all people equally, including people with disabilities. And so I think it's, you know, can also be a matter of holding people accountable, um, and supporting their capacity to do so.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It it is. Um. Uh. A, a friend of mine and a really wonderful scholar, um, and activist, Tina Minkowitz, has written uh, a lot about this. Um, and it is. Um, I think it's it's difficult for some people to grapple with the idea, um, that that people with disabilities are um held equally responsible, um, equally criminally responsible, um, as people without disabilities, um, but. Uh, it highlights a few things. It it highlights the inadequacy of our criminal justice system as a whole, um, I think, because when you start going down that road and you ask the question, well, well why shouldn't people with disabilities be held legally responsible? Um, often the answer is, well, you don't want them in the prison setting. Like, it's a terrible setting to be in. Um, it doesn't um, provide any support for people. Um, it doesn't um, allow for, um, it, it's essentially a punishment, right? It's essentially um, punitive um, measure, um, which which of course, in, in theory, it's not supposed to be a wholly punitive um, measure. Um, and then you ask yourself, is anybody, even those who aren't identified as people with disabilities, um, is being in a prison setting Benefiting anyone, <laughs> um, both either the people that are in there or or society as a whole when people are placed in there, um, and there's some real questions that arise around that um, as well. So, so of course, it, it's absolutely true that that every prison setting that I've ever encountered is not supportive of um, people with disabilities. It's not accessible. Um, they're often not accessible settings. Um, however, that's it, it's almost a separate issue, um, and it really challenged the whole um, criminal justice system. But it's a separate issue from whether, um, in theory, in principle, people with disabilities should be um, held criminally responsible on the same um, on the same uh, on an equal basis with people without disabilities. Um, and my argument is that Article 12 says um, says they must be, um, and I think that challenges us then to. Um, Change our criminal justice systems to ensure that they're actually um, supporting people to not reoffend and supporting people to um, be detained in an accessible and supportive way when that is, um, you know, the appropriate um, course. Um, but um, but but yeah, it's quite a controversial thing that Article 12 raises, and, and um, a significant challenge to our uh, another significant challenge to our legal systems as they exist now.
1: No, I think it's interesting, and one thing I like about your book is you do present these kind of concrete examples of um, how to improve things. And I I think the point that you make is really interesting. That you know, for example, Article 12 and the Convention on the Rights with Persons with Disabilities while it looks at making things better and more equal for people with disabilities, it also forces us to challenge the assumptions and the kind of institutions and structures that are already in place, and it shines a light on the problems with those. Um, So in making the world better and more accommodating of people with disabilities, we're potentially making it better for everyone. Yes, exactly.
2: Um, I think that that's um, another thing that really... um, uh, excites me about um, Article 12 of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is that um, the challenge to create a legal system that respects everyone's legal capacity on an equal basis. Um, it, it really does make us reflect on all these different areas of our law um, that we're not doing that, um, and and that goes beyond disability as well. Um, so a really interesting one, which. Um, um, which actually segues into um, what my research is looking at um, now, um, a really interesting issue is um, immigration law. So so essentially um, immigrants, um, uh, both documented and undocumented, um, have their legal capacity denied in various different ways when they are arriving in a new um, jurisdiction. And um, I think the right to equal recognition before the law and the right to legal capacity um, presents significant challenges for immigration law. And um, what my new research is looking into is is whether um, is whether there whether the right to equal recognition before the law can be squared with immigration law that limits legal capacity of um, documented and undocumented um, immigrants um, uh, in various different ways. Um, Uh, The the other um, interesting area of the law, I think, um, is um, women's rights um, and the right of women to be equal before the law and have legal capacity on an equal basis. Um, So actually, the the newest um, book that I'm um, working on right now um, is called Legal Capacity and Gender. Um, uh, It will be published with um, Springer um, sometime soon. Um, And... um, (laughs) <laughs> and um, in that book, I'm looking at how the right to legal capacity is denied um, for um, women, disabled women and gender minorities. Um, so, yeah, I started this sort of journey looking at how um, decision making and legal capacity is denied to people with disabilities. But um it really extends to so many different groups. Um, and the, the the strength of it, I believe, is actually if you manage to figure out how to protect the right to equal recognition before the law um, for everyone, I think you actually manage to solve a lot of um, inequality problems um, and a lot of discrimination problems as well. Um, so, for example, gender minorities... Um, are having their legal capacity restricted um, on the basis that it's very difficult to um, have your um, your gender um, changed, um, and um, and or if you're non-binary, um, if you if you identify as non-binary, to to have that recognized at all in legal documents, um, and without legal documentation um, regarding your um, gender, which is often your identity documents um you're significantly restricted in terms of how you can um exercise legal agency um so even just signing a contract you are required any kind of contract um you're required to show legal identification usually um and um if you aren't able to get legal identification because you aren't able to have your gender accurately um uh depicted on your um accurately identified on your um, identification on your legal identification um, that significantly restricts your ability to contract and y- your ability to exercise agency in many different ways um, so in my new book that's what i'm looking at um, how can we make sure that everyone has the right um to exercise legal capacity on an equal basis um, and how will the realization of that right um solve a lot of problems we have actually in um um, in terms of marginalization of, of various different groups of people.
1: That sounds really fascinating. Um, I'm hoping that maybe once it's published, we can chat again and yeah, be do another recording. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, I've really, I've learned so much today, and I'm sure all the listeners have as well. Um, and we will look forward to your new book.
2: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to um, talk about my book.